Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski and I am your host, walking you through the five-year period that my father, brother, and I robbed jewelry stores all over New England. Welcome to episode 17, The Littleton Robbery, and the tale of two dads. Uh, so we're going to set this up as we do all usual episodes where we include a robbery. We're going to go over the target, we're going to go over the plan, we'll go over how it was cased, we'll go over the execution and then the take, and then the second part of this episode, I want to spend some time talking about uh, the picture that is the cover art for this episode, and kind of give you guys a little bit of background on uh, the family dynamics and what it was like growing up for us that may help um, you understand how we got to this point, because I don't know that anybody's shrugging. The circumstances certainly are extraordinary, but in the end, uh, how we got there and why we got there, in my mind, are much clearer after doing this podcast and having some of this, some of these conversations with my dad. So I want to kind of lay some groundwork for um, what it was like for us growing up and how it affected each one of us differently. So the cover art you are you are looking at is uh, my step family. My mother is there. In, on the left, my sister is very, very poignantly uh, showing what it was like and, and uh, probably summing up very aptly how she felt about the man that is opposite her, which is her actual dad. So my father is not my sister's father. And the man in that picture is. He was our stepfather growing up. And we'll get into that. Um, and I got a couple of calls and uh, we will get into all of that stuff. So really excited for episode 17. Here we go. Probably going to be important for me to lay some groundwork here um, and to pick up from where we were last week with the Sprinkle episode of the interrogation room. Now, my mother and sister are in Epping. My dad is with Nancy. Um, Kev is in Florida with Susan. And I am, you know, I'm all over the place, to be honest with you. I had stacked my deck so thick with things to do so that I wouldn't be involved in any more robberies that I was a hard person to get a hold of at this point, meaning I was going to school full time. I quit BJ's because BJ's got really weird after the Sprinkle situation. So Sprinkle had blown me up so many times at work to harass me and to get me to come in that uh, it became a job that I not only didn't want, but uh, I just couldn't handle it anymore. Brookside was taking a lot of my time and school was taking a lot of my time. And I didn't need a, you know $8 an hour job that was taking my weekends and I wanted to spend time with Dawn. So... The other part of that that was weird was I was constantly sat down by the two women that were supervisors and asked questions about the break-in and, and you know, the cops. And they were very curious on a rumor level, not an employment level. They didn't care that a detective was calling me, but they got a little... I just didn't like the situation. And for me, especially having to hide everything about myself and everything about what we were doing I didn't like the I didn't like it so I dumped the hell out of there and you know again continued to try to live this double life one that seemed like the life I had always 
wanted to and should have lived. You know, responsible, going to school. You know, I, I, I had to wear a tie to work. Um, I had to look presentable to work. I had to follow very specific standards. This was a medical detox facility. Um, I was working with doctors and nurses. This was... Um, God, I, I would have gone as far as is possible in the psychology field if it wasn't for my felonies. I would have never stopped. And I would have never stopped because there wasn't enough for me to know. So every single day that I spent in prison, I read an entire library worth of psychology books. And mainly they were all like for me to figure out the Rubik's Cube that is my brain. Um, psychology d definitely helped me put things into perspective for myself. But at the same time, I wanted to, to go as far as possible. And that's why this job for me was just heartbreaking to to the career itself was heartbreaking to to have to leave and to know that hey you know realistically the best you could ever really do here is is a mental health worker at you know 15 bucks an hour or whatever the hell they were paying no idea but you know it was it was satisfying this work uh so i was doing that I was uh, also spending significant time um, going to my mother's because dad and Nancy, um, still together at this point of, in the story after the Sprankle interview, um, and Nancy had adopted a dog, and she, she rescued a greyhound from the track which is unbelievably noble, which helped her score points in my mind because I always hated the bitch and still do. Now, to, to be honest, she ratted me out and I'm supposed to hate her, right? And and when I used to talk to high schools, lots of people would say, hey, Bri, you know, how do you feel about Nancy that she ratted you out? You did prison time for her. And I did prison time for me. I did prison time because of what I did. I did prison time in, in some respects, you could argue, for my dad. I don't know where I stand on that issue. A lot of people say I should blame him and that I was there for him, but I mean, on all legal basis, uh, basis, is that even a word? Um, I was an adult. Everything that I did was as an adult at 25 years old, I should have known better. And a lot of people out there right now at 25, when presented with this situation, uh, I don't know, maybe you're mixed, maybe half of you would and half of you wouldn't. I don't know. I know that I did. So, it, so I, I put myself there. In terms of how I feel about Nancy, I never liked her. So the fact that she ratted me out certainly didn't help anything. But the fact that she adopted this beautiful animal and rescued this beautiful animal from the track really endeared her to me. But at the same time, the fact that she had to give it up because she couldn't handle it, because her heart was bigger than her ability to actually care long enough to have this animal and treat it the way that it should have been, she just left it alone all the time. And this was typical of Nancy. Nancy, I think my brother and I spent more time with Nancy's dog uh, than Nancy did. Little Midas was a little Laza Opso. And my mother loved Laza Opsos growing up. That's all we had were these little tiny yippy shit dogs that I think it was Chinese empresses used to. And the yippiness was because 
that empress, when she was sleeping in a castle or whatever, wanted first alert of anybody coming to her. So the yippiness is bred into them specifically for that reason. Heard a noise, yip, everybody's up, wake up. And it's that um, piercing type of bark that they have that is um, that wakes you up. And you, you know, not that you would sleep through a lab barking, but at the same time, this, this, these animals are bred for that reason. So we had them forever. And Kevin and I loved the thing. You know, we loved any dog. I think I ended up, the stripper that I dated down in Florida when living next to Kev, we ended up taking care of her dog, Snowy, more than she spent time with it. So Kevin and I were like, Kevin and I would have been great uh, opening a doggy daycare. Because just both of us spoke dog language. I think both of us appreciate dogs more than we do humans in most situations. So, um, Midas, uh, Kev used to sing this song. Again, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but Kev would sing this song to Midas. It was, uh, <laughs> I'm just a little guy that wants to be a big guy. That was, <laughs> and we would sing that to him. And just the little dog had the had a blast, I think. Midas was involved in one of the crashings of dad's station wagons that Kev took down. So the list of cars that I read in the last episode of cars that Kev totaled, Midas, this little tiny Laza Opso, was in one of those accidents. He survived. He was okay. Um, but case in point, why was Midas with Kev? Um, it's because Nancy, we, we were horrified at how much time this dog ended up spending alone. So we took it all the time. And so long story uh, longer, she couldn't handle this greyhound. So she sent it to my mom's. My mother agreed to take it. And anybody that grew up in, in uh, Peabody with us, you knew that our house was one-stop shopping for wayward animals. If you had a homeless animal or you had an animal that you took home that you were sure your mom was going to let you keep and didn't, you parked it at 12 Sherwood and that's where it lived its life. We had nine cats, three dogs at one point, but those dogs had litters. So it you know, could be anywhere between three permanent dogs and 12 um, at any given time. All of the cats were... Um, most of them were females. They all had litter. So at any given time, we had 30 cats in the house. It was a, Jesus, it was awful. Probably why I don't have any allergies today, because growing up, my immune system would allow it. I remember Sasha was our first cat, and it was an all-black cat. This cat could take down an owl and did. I remember one of my earliest memories is an owl coming towards me horizontally. I'm like, what the hell? And it was Sasha carrying it to us. It lay, she laid an owl on our doorstep. She was she was pretty messed up herself. I think we took her to the vet, but we had some badass cats is what I'm saying. Now, it, it was easy to, to sell Jet to my mother. It was a rescue. My mother spent a lot of time trying to get... Um, there's a racetrack in Massachusetts. There was a racetrack in Seaborn, New Hampshire. Or is it Salem? Might have been Salem. And there was one down in Massachusetts in Revere or was it uh, East Boston? But uh, now closed. I think they're making it condos. Um, she tried to get them closed and she hated the idea of both horse racing 
and of dog racing. So she she took this animal, and uh, I would spend weekends with the dog because my mother had to go down and spend her weekends with her mother because Bupchi was getting just very frail after the death of, of her husband. She just sort of went downhill function-wise, and she was alone a lot in a very big condo. And uh, my mother went down there every weekend out of just some weird neurotic obligation to, you know, a woman who I'm not entirely sure was very good to her growing up, to be honest. Because Bupchi wasn't very good to us. She was very strict, very disciplinarian, very abusive. I can't remember that woman ever hugging me, ever. I cannot remember a single Bupchi hug in my life, so... If you're a Bupchi out there, you ever see me, give me a hug because I don't know what it's like. Wah. Anyway, Jet was awesome. If you've ever spent time with a Greyhound, uh, especially these types of animals, they are very affectionate. And Jet only wanted your hand on him. That's all he cared about. And he was the king of kicking back. Uh, very relaxed, very laid back. He he would go lay. If you've ever seen a dog lay on all f uh, on his back with all fours in the air like this, it's it's very interesting sight. I wish I had pictures of it, but again, I didn't. I wasn't really great at at taking pictures back then, and there weren't cell phones that you could just pull out of your pocket and take nineteen pictures in two seconds. That being said, I spent time with the dog. On weekends when I could, that I wasn't working third shift, when I wasn't uh, with Dawn, who I was practically living with. And understand that the busyness that I was creating going from Nashua to Epping, from Epping to Concord, from Concord back to Nashua, um, was an attempt to avoid that and to avoid any talk or even a glimmer of another robbery, especially after the Sprinkle uh, incident. I, I can't tell you how paranoid it made me. It was uh, absolute adamant that we weren't going to, and we weren't going to do this again. No more, right? Well, I, I find myself, my dad tricks me into the planning stage of this robbery. So the Littleton robbery, if we discuss the target and the plan, I didn't know I was being brought into this discussion. Okay, so let me tell you, I gave you that, that all that background stuff about where everybody was so that you would understand that at this point, I'm fried. I'm just smoked. I don't take vacations. Um, I don't go away often. I've never been out of the country. At this point, I've never been out of the country. And... If I had ever been on any type of vacation, it was to Florida, me and Kev escaping the anxiety of one of the robberies that we did. And when we went, when before Kev moved to Clearwater, Florida, because of the DWIs that he was facing habitual offender status for and automatic jail. So you have to understand that, it, you know, and I've talked about it in past podcasts where Kev, if he's pulled over, he's using my name. And... I went down with him a couple times to pick a place for him to move. You know, it was like, hey, I got to move to Florida because I'm, I'm not going to prison. No son of mine is going to prison was a quote my dad actually said. When discussing why it was okay for Kev to go to Florida after getting 
six DUIs in in a two week span. He absolutely has to hold some sort of record for number of DUIs. And I in one of the calls that I talked to Dad about, you know, if Massachusetts has a point system, Kev won. They sent him a letter said, "You win. Please don't ever get behind the wheel of a car again." And they made him go to multiple. They made him jump through multiple hoops to even get a driver's license again. So, at that point, um, I hadn't been anywhere, and and I was working myself to the bone. That dad caught me once. Like he would call, I wouldn't answer. Too busy, too busy. I would let a week or two go by. Oh, so and I would give him a call back and say, "Oh, I'm on my way to work. I can't really talk right now," just so I wouldn't get sucked into any conversation about any type of robbery. So he calls me and he says, Duh, "I'm I'm heading to Mexico." I got a really good deal on an all-inclusive um, package. Why don't you want to come down for a couple of days and, and take a break with me? And I was on, from school, I was on um, Christmas break. It was January. So the January, before this robbery, and I think we did the robbery in March, because I do remember wearing a, a decent heavy jacket for the Littleton robbery. In January, I was off from school and I got a week off from the internship and work and I went down. I figured, hey, I'll just kick back in Mexico and spend, you know, I had some money saved aside. I was making money. I wasn't spending any of my robbery money. It was sitting in the safe. I said, hey, why not? Let's take the opportunity. The only issue that I had with going away for a week, other than a massive, awesome seven days of relaxation, was leaving Dawn. And that gave me a lot of it. I was in love, so you don't want to be separated from anybody. But she couldn't come. She had her own responsibilities. And we were way too early in the relationship for me to even suggest it. But, ladies and gentlemen, do not go to an all-inclusive Puerto Vallada, Mexico resort if you don't have a girlfriend or a significant other to go with because it's boring as shit. Mexico is not the type of place, at least it wasn't when I went there, that you step off the property line of an all-inclusive resort and, you know, frolic. It was literally one step past the property line you were in, the uh, uh, very poor country, and you knew it. So, my only issue was leaving her for any significant amount of time, but I still relish the idea of going down, chilling out, having a great vacation. I didn't know that Bill Lawson was also going to be at this resort with me and my dad. Now, everything's paid for at this resort. You can drink all you want. You can eat all you want. It's huge. Had a huge pool. I mean, just to do a lap in this pool was probably a mile. So it was great. It was a great spot. And I, I just laid out in the Mexican sun, I think with baby oil on, um, the entire time. And it was probably during this week, Wednesday-ish, excuse me, <clears throat> that I was in, uh, dad called me over, I think, to have a drink and with him and Bill. I knew Bill was there. I think we had dinner once or twice with the family. I was, I was a little surprised Bill was there, but at the same time, yeah, okay, he was there with his family. Certainly didn't think that the next day, as as Bill was, I don't know, cleaning up a diaper or something in the kiddie pool. They had this little kiddie pool section that was just as big as, as the regular pool section. But Bill had his kid in there, and Dad called me over, and I get into the kiddie pool, standing, you know, 
in baby P and they start talking about Littleton. Bill says, well, this guy is, uh, I know him. He's, he's one of those traveling salesmen. This job has the potential to be a Jacob or a Burlington or a Bob, right? Jacob one or two, which were both huge robberies for us in Burlington. That these are the robberies for which the standard has been set and for which we will measure all other robberies in terms of success or failure. So Bill starts talking about this uh, this guy, traveling salesman. So Littleton hasn't been chosen as a location to take this guy down yet. And that becomes one of the problems, as it always is in the robberies. It's not very easy to find those situations that we can pay cash for a store, although it was easier than, than anybody thought. At the same time, it certainly wasn't regular. Now, Bill starts talking about this target, why he's good, Maurice. I remember his name because I have a long history with Maurice, and you'll figure out why in later podcasts, but you know, this is not my first and last encounter with Maurice. He starts talking about him being a Jacob or a Burlington type of target that size. So... It's undeniable, right? You can see dad is like, yes, uh-huh. And I'm like, are you are you crazy? The heat here. Now, Bill um, didn't get any of the take of the insurance robbery. But he knew the heat was on. And, and dad was not convinced that the heat was on us. He felt it had transferred to us momentarily, but wasn't on us anymore. He didn't think the police were a problem the way that I did. So, as we're talking about this potential, pro- this potential target, our typical problems come up. Where are we going to do the robbery? Can we find another store? Dad doesn't think so. And at the beginning stages of this meeting, it almost sounds like Dad's trying to find reasons not to do it. The same way I'm trying to find reasons not to do it. And But I'm... You know, he's got his conversation and, and doing it with Bill. I'm preparing to have that conversation with him post-Bill to tell him we shouldn't be doing this anymore. Why? Why? So, it doesn't sound like we're going to be able to find another store. It doesn't sound like um, we will have the ability to control the situation. So, now we have a potential salesman that we think we can get to come to somewhere with his product line, but his product line is in his car and we have to find the time to clean that car out. Those are our issues. That was our issue with Bob, but the store was just key in in helping us do that. Same for Jacob too. Now, part of... Part of the problem here was that renting that store was also expensive. It was a lot of cash up front. First, last, security, um, all in cash you have to pay up front. So, you know, it can run you a decent chunk of change. And boy, efficient dad here, I think instead of me thinking he was thinking of reasons not to, I think he's thinking of reasons to keep the overall cost of doing the robbery down. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I am introducing to you today the concept of robbery overhead. <laughs> I have multiple quotes here from my dad that I play in most episodes that we were paying too we we were paying people too many too much money and we weren't finding the right targets. So dad, now when you enter data into dad's robbery computed brain, you get from that a list of robbery overhead. Well, we're going to have to get this. We're going to have to get this. We're going to have to get this. And this all factors in his deciding now whether or not to do a job. Because, again, there's multiple robberies. The Boston Box robbery. There's multiple robberies where we walked away with Dick. With nothing. So it's just very interesting. And I'm coining, I, I'm coining that term now. Robbery overhead. <laughs> As something, if, you know, any of you are listening to this podcast as a how-to, uh, <laughs> there you go. Chapter 12, Robbery Overhead. So, Bill gets called away by, you know, and it's funny. Bill was there with his family. I could not pick his wife out in the lineup to save, your, to save my life. I don't know what she looks like. Bill looked a lot like Robert Kennedy. If you want to picture something, every time I looked at him and he had that, he had that, that South Shore accent, like the Kennedys, that it, it wasn't, it was annoying. I don't like listening to him very long. And, uh, I, I, at this point I used to delight in how mad dad got at him, but cause it wasn't directed at me. Number one, number two, it was just fun to watch dad get mad. So, you know, now there's a little aside between me and dad and we're going to talk about, you know, whether or not we want to do this. And I say right away, this is fucking crazy. Are you out of your mind? Sprinkles up our ass. Oh, son, please. We were at a bar. We sat at the bar. There were four bars in in this resort and most of them were dead. And we sat at two o'clock in the afternoon and he was sipping on wine. The guy could, my dad can drink wine <laughs> the way people breathe air and not seem at all. I would be three wines in and slur. My dad never, ever, ever, ever slurs. Never. He'll pass out before that. And we start talking about it. And I'm just the voice of no. And, you know, he's he's kicking around. And you can see the, the cogs are turning in his head. That he's nodding. He's agreeing with me, Dad. It's just a situation. We can't really handle it. We have enough money. Sprinkles on our ass. Why don't we just let this shit die away? We've done enough. How much more do we need? You know, son, you're right, and and you know this this could be a situation. But if it is Burlington, if it is a Jacob, then it could set us up for life. And and that was always the last. That was it. It could set us up for life. I knew was almost like the declaration that there was no turning back from here. So I spent the rest of that week missing the shit out of Dawn. It, had a couple of days left before we flew back to Massachusetts. So I just, I don't, I don't know that I've ever been this dark. I mean, I was black. <laughs> and this will be significant. So I fly home and I think it was, we got delayed at the airport. I called Dawn. God, I couldn't wait to hear her voice. God. There's just, I don't know if being in love what it's like for other people. But for me, it's just like being gut punched 
constantly. You can't get that feeling of, I just got hit in the gut, out. And it makes me a little nuts. It makes me a little crazy. So, uh, (laughs) me and love don't mix, unless I'm being punched in the face, obviously. Um, So, it was an uncomfortable trip. It was a little bit worrisome, but I, I was confident that when I got home, I would be too busy to be able to do anything. So, get home, don't hear another thing about it until March, where um, I get another break. Spring break for me was in March, and Dad knew that. And Dad summoned Kev during that week and called me and got me on the phone to ask me if I could watch him and take care of him that week. It would mean a lot to him. Um, He offered to pay me extra to watch Kev and, you know, get him where he needed to go because the job was a go. Now, I, there wasn't there wasn't any discussion there wasn't any asking Kev's coming you gotta you gotta take care of him and basically taking care of him at this point means that Kev it's not a good idea to leave my brother alone and it never was especially when he moved to Florida and there were times that his roommate couldn't be there or Susan had to be at work that we got phone calls from him. And his sugar would be going low, and we'd have to call 911 and get an ambulance there. And while he was having a seizure, 911 would have to get into the apartment somehow. And multiple times that happened while he was down there by himself. So it was becoming clearer and clearer that he could not be left alone unless there was some other way for him to monitor his blood sugar um, other than doing test strips. And back then, there weren't uh, there weren't any pumps. There weren't any other types of monitoring that allowed you the freedom to be away from that that strip. And Kev's blood sugar was notorious for dropping so low that he would go into a seizure. And post-seizure, the brain, you die. And you will hear my dad eerily say, and I've heard him say in phone calls, that when dad dies, if Kev is left alone, he won't make it a day or two before. I mean, if he goes down in a seizure, that's it. So... That's part of that reason. The other part of the reason is is my dad knows that uh, I uh, I just always have had to believe that as as ignorant as my dad claims to ever be about addiction, that he knew that that Kev needed to get high while he was here, and that part of what I did was to get him to Acasio. By now, because of my addiction, Kev dad knew who Acasio was. If you don't know who Ocasio is, he was our drug dealer. He was our coke dealer and steroid dealer for Kev. And I would have to drive Kev down to see him multiple times while he was there. And I would have to drive him to go get weed. Ocasio was not a weed dealer, so I'd have to find a way to get him weed. That's how I met Don, if you remember last episode. I talk about I met Don during a drug deal. You know, Susan mailed stuff up for... Kev to smoke because it's very difficult to do these robberies without drugs. So again, in in as much as it was a threat to my sobriety, I did it because I knew. I watched my brother do cocaine while I was sober. There there wouldn't be a sponsor or even a, a guy on day one of recovery that wouldn't say, that's a bad idea. 
but none of them knew what it was like to to rob stores and what it was like to have the pressure of their dad um making you do it man neither one of us would have done any of this neither one of us did anything on our own who did stuff on their own my dad so kev's home and our relationship is not good i gotta tell you that the whole time that he's down in florida I called him on a regular basis and I had issues with him, you know, dropping during a conversation, but I had more issues with Kev's complete disinterest in, in my life at all. You couldn't have a conversation with him longer than 30 seconds, which basically you knew after him saying hello that he wasn't going to offer information. He wasn't going, he wasn't uh, open to listening to information he just wasn't that dude, and it led you to think that maybe he just didn't give a fuck about you. And, you know, and then it came, his love for you came out in sentences like, if anything happens to mom, I will kill a school bus full of kids. That's a, a quote that I have to believe is Kev's way, his only way of telling you that he loves you. Because he can't do it in any conventional way, ever, 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 ever could he do that. So our relationship's not great, and I'm sober now. And when you're sober, you're self-righteous. Newly sober, you're completely self-righteous, and all you really know how to do is point at other people. Oh, look at that, you're eating sugar. Uh-oh, oh boy, sugar's addictive. You're an addict. Like, so you're an asshole a little bit. But I, have, I had some, I had a little science, which may have been even worse. <laughs> Somebody with a little science might even be worse than the ignorant, but we were different. And at sober, I saw shit a little clearer. And I saw that Kevin and I never met on common ground. And all the places that we could meet on common ground were shit places to meet on common ground. Drugs and robberies. And, and so then post that, you don't talk about it. It's not something you can process and discuss with your buddy. So this is a long way to go to let you guys know that Kevin and I aren't getting along very well. So our trips are basically, I'm a driver. I'm his driver. As we always did, we meet at the Cafe Escadrille in Burlington to talk about the final stages of how we're going to do this because Dad found a location and there was no casing in this robbery because we were just having him, uh, having him meet us at a random office park. So the reason this happened in Littleton is because dad chose it. Dad was up and down 495 constantly. And he found this little tiny office park on the junction of Route 119 and 495. That's it, uh, what I remember of it. It was a massive brick building that looks like multiple businesses inside. Turns out it's, was, oh, it was rented by one. So when you went in... It was a big, huge lobby. And when I say huge, I mean not like a, a lobby that you'd walk into a building in Boston where you could easily disappear into a crowd. Again, and I, I, I say that as one company, we stuck out even more because everybody knew each other, pretty much. So we were going to just sit into it. The plan was we were going to sit in the lobby of that building. And Dad concluded that, you know, rather than then have a store where we're going to coax this guy in and then go find and remove the jewelry from his car. Why don't we just take the car? Now, this car was not as elaborate 
as Bob's with the quarter panel, with the three locks. I mean, Bob's was done up in a way like the Littleton robbery that this guy's name was Maurice. And again, I have more to do with Maurice um, post robbery, but Bob, his car seems like it was set up and, and insured by Prudential. And Maurice's car and his setup seems like it was produced by Joe's insurance in the Cayman Islands. You know what I mean? Like if 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 Maurice did claim this robbery, he he wasn't gonna walk away with a couple hundred grand extra. Is is my point? It seemed that way anyway. So said Dad said since the car itself is not armored in a way that would prevent us from being able to clean it out at a different location why don't we just take the car so the plan was that kevin and i would wait in the lobby of this building and look like try to look like we belong there but who cared if we didn't to wait the little the amount of time that it was going to take for maurice to come there thinking that he was walking into a um, store trying to um, stock itself with his product line so again, he was going to wheel in or have a suitcase full of fake stuff that were samples of what he had in the car if a sale was made. Now, you'll hear my dad, I think, says in one of the calls that I'm going to play for you that now companies just have you look at the brass and glass and the fake stuff. And then they mail the stuff to you, probably because the post office or FedEx offers more protection than the insurance company does. And you can insure it probably way better and that's how they do things and and i would like to think that i have something to do with that policy i would like to think the sobolewski family has something to do with the fact that they took the middleman out of this whole thing because we were robbing that guy so we would meet him in the parking lot kev would take his gun out and point it in his face and say something poetic like he always did in these robberies that's the point that I don't want to say I looked forward to. I, I want to say that he always said something clever. I don't know. Like, it, to me, it's... I imagine he thinks he's a movie character moving towards his target. And he's going to say something like Clint Eastwood. And he always did. But it also was, to me, a significant point in the robbery. Like, if you talk about the rising climax and then the peak. The, you know, that was the point that we were going to begin the, the slow, steady, de steady decline of the adrenaline that had been that had been pumping through our veins ever since Mexico. <laughs> Mine, anyway. So that point always signified an ending to me, or the beginning of the ending of a robbery to me. That's why I looked forward to it, if that makes any sense. We were going to take the car to an undisclosed location, a couple office parks down like this area because it was so close to 495 in Littleton was like an office park so we brought it to another building um, drove the car to an empty spot and cleaned it out wiped it for prints and we're gonna drive away that was the plan that was our plan for this robbery um, and that is mostly how it went down now, I'm spending the week driving Kev all over the place to Ocasio, and we're talking very little. Other than to talk about, you know, is this the last one? Is there any way that we, I ask Kev flat out, is there any way we can sit Dad down and make this the last one? 
Kev says, well, he says this is the last one. And I said, well, he said that five robberies ago. Oh. And that was it. That's all, That's it. That's all the discussion you get. So no, Kevin and I were there was going to be no sit down. We were never a united front. We were never a united front. And I, I got to wonder if dad somehow knew that. If dad somehow knew that the division between Kevin and I was somehow useful in him getting us to continue to do this. Because who else are you going to trust but your family, my kids? Another quote from dad. There was no morning of, I, I, you know, there was no are we bad people discussion here. I'm already, I already know I'm a bad person at this point. And Kev has always had that belief. There, there has always been a part of Kev's low blood sugars that he would say, and he confided me once, that he has very bad feelings. He can never name the feelings. He can never attach a specific feeling. Uh, emotion to that feeling he just calls them the bad feelings and uh i don't i don't know man i i would walk a mile in those shoes just to know what it was like to be kev with a somewhat debilitating uh disease the diabetes it can't be easy to live with it can't be easy just in the in terms of feeling different than but kev was superior in so many other ways that that it was almost like that God gave him diabetes to knock him down a peg. Christ, the kid, look at the picture of me and him in the last episode. He's he's two feet taller than me. I'm looking at his feet because that's the only thing I could really focus on. Was it coming towards me or was it going away from me? Away from me was always preferable. God, what I would have done with those jeans. Jesus. So I don't see him a lot. I end up just going uh, to dad's from Don's that morning. Imagine kissing your girlfriend goodbye. <laughs> going to pull a, a job. She didn't know anything. Don didn't know anything at this point. So I go and we take um, dad's Maxima. Now, this this is also another piece of this where dad is just starting to take anything that isn't nailed down. And the story of the two Maximas, geez, I've, I've had this written down on so many of the plans from so many other episodes that I haven't told it yet. But my dad had a got a certain amount of money every month from his job as, as a driving expense. And he went out shopping for cars in his class. Let's say the $25,000 range for car. Back then, that was close to, that was, you know... A decent amount of money to pay for a car. You were in the you were in the three series BMW by then, and my dad didn't want a three series BMW, so instead, he bought a souped up Maxima. And those of you that have Nissan Maximas, you know that the Japanese are trying to kill us with speed, because these things are fast. If it was turbo, it was every bell and whistle on the inside. The Nissan Maxima really did a really good job setting itself up next to the BMW by saying, yeah, it's not a BMW, but at the same time, it may have beat it in a couple of ways. But dad still thought, my dad still felt that his fire engine red, beautiful, souped up Nissan Maxima was too much money. So he reported it stolen and got an exact replica. 
the only difference between these two maximas was the vehicle identification number. Is it, it was perfect in that, of course you got one that looks just like the one you had. And why would anyone suspect that the one that he was sitting in was the one he reported stolen? And we use this maxima, we'd put different plates on it, and we used it all the time. I used it all the time. I got pulled over on it, constantly. Um, that's what he would be sitting in. So, so we drove down in that. Dad dropped us off in the parking lot. Kev adamant that Dad not be seen still, and there's a composite drawing of him. So we got dropped off, let's say, in the mid-parking lot of this office park. We walk into the lobby of the office park and it's a big open foyer with offices, you know, in hallways spanning off all of them and a couple of couches in the middle. And we stick out like sore friggin' thumbs. Both of us are wearing an earring that we had from Burlington. Oh no, Jacob won. Jacob won. Kevin and I split a pair of diamond stud earrings, half carat each. They most, I think they were close to flawless. When you put this thing in your ear, it just glowed. It was amazing. And both of us wore it. That was the only, we were the diamond stud idiots um both sitting in that i probably had on a gold necklace probably a gold bracelet i we just probably looked like a couple of douchebags and we stuck out we didn't look business at all i we wore nice jeans and a shirt but we looked like we were waiting to do an armed robbery kev has this bulge on the side of his because he's got the nine millimeter i got the 357 never in my life have i had ever any intention of taking that gun out of my pocket from where it was ever if i ever had to shoot it it would have been in my pocket never taking that thing out because i never wanted anyone to look at me the way that they ended up looking at kev when he put it in their face and i never wanted to deal with closing my eyes at night and having that image in my head and that is as close as i can get to understanding what it was like for kev to do that so we're sitting there Everyone's looking at this like at us. One person, I think, eventually said, can I help you guys? And we're like, nope. Watching the doors and waiting because we have a description of Maurice's car. It is a midnight blue. And you really had to, it's like navy blue. You know, navy blue is pretty much black till you see it in really bright light. And it was a, it was a New York, um, it was a Chrysler New Yorker. If you've ever driven one of these things, there's a Chrysler insignia on the front of the car. The car's hood, the hood ornament, is crystal. And boy, when the light hit that, I, I can't believe it didn't burn some, some of the driver's retinas out. But we knew he was going to pull in in that. And once he pulled in, we would begin our descent into the parking lot as he was beginning his ascent into the building. And I was going to grab his case. I was going to grab his keys. I was going to go get the car. I was going to pull up the car and get Kev. Um, at that point, Kev would get into the car and we drive away. So we're in that lobby. Car pulls up. Kev gets up. I move and I'm walking. And as we're walking, Kev's moving quick. Kev's moving quicker than I would like him to move. And... I am flanked by him. Kev, slow down. Because we can see him. He's out of his car and he starts walking to. He's paying us no attention. I notice he has his... I have my eyes on the suitcase. And what pocket he's putting those keys in. Right? Because those are my two targets. 
I could I don't know that I could tell you what it even looked like other than from far away. It's getting closer. I'm trying not to make eye contact. Kev's not making eye contact. Kev slides his hands inside the coat. He puts the gun out, puts it at his side. He's walking with it at his side, probably 50 feet from him. I see the case. I speed up my walk so I'm a little bit in front of Kev so I can be past Maurice when Kev meets him. Clash happens. Kev gets up to Maurice, pulls the gun out, and he says... Give me your fucking car keys in your case or I'll blow your fucking head off. I'm already in the process of grabbing that case. I have it in my hands and I'm fishing to his um, right hand pants pocket where his keys are. I grab them. There weren't a ton of keys like Bob's. So I make my way towards the car. Kev puts the gun down at his side so he's not standing there holding it in his face. And Kev says, go into the building now and call the cops which wasn't planned on. We never planned on what Kev was going to say or what Kev was going to do with the victim. That was always up to him. But, I don't know. The response time was impossible for the cops to even be able to get to us by the time we were driving away. So none of that was of any concern. So I'm pulling up Maurice's car to Kev as I'm watching Maurice run towards the building. Kev walks around the back of the car, gets in the passenger side, so painstakingly slow, I want to stab him. Gets in the car, the weight of the car, (laughs) squashes down, and uh, we drive away. And just as we're starting to drive away, uh, red, fire engine red, Nissan Maxima pulls in behind us, and we drive to an office park that is, you know, about a half mile, mile away. Pull in there, not far away from too much of the, because people are starting to filter in to this office park. So the time of day that we're doing this is right around 9, 9.30, where people are starting to show up for work. We have a stolen car sitting there. Dad's next to us. Both trunks are open, and we're unloading cases, of which there's not a lot. There's a duffel bag, a huge duffel bag that I grab and I hoist in that feels pretty promising, but, you know, you never know. Could be invoices, could be cash. Couple of suitcases, and um, I would say three decent sized carry on suitcases of stuff. And we throw them into the car. That closes the hood. I start the process of wiping down prints. Kev gets into the car, sits next to, uh, he's on the passenger side of my dad, and I sit in the back. Uh, after I wipe down the entire car that we had used. Uh, that of um, Maurice's just in case anybody touched anything. Wipe it down. We're on our way. This was not a Burlington or a Jake uh, or a Jacob sized job. We get home in the duffel bag and you'll hear in the call dad talk about the pearls. The duffel bag was full of pearls. When I say full of pearls, it looked like the set of the first King Kong. There were a lot of pearls in that movie, for those of you who have not seen this 1975 version, with Jessica Lange, where she's so hot in that, in that movie. But, I mean, it's just, it's a terrible movie. But my point is, there were a lot of pearls. Fresh water, salt water, how do you tell a, a fresh between a salt? You rub it on your tooth. If it feels sandpapery, it is salt, and it is real. If it doesn't, it's lab-created, fake, or fresh water. And fresh water weren't as as expensive as salt. 
but we had a duffel bag full of them. Yeehaw. The other cases were, we had hoped they would be full of those velvet rows full of chains and stuff like that, but they were actually cardboard boxes of display cases that you would put samples of a product line in that you would order from. So they were color gems, they were real, they weren't fake, but they were, you could tell that they were part of a sample that you would get. You wouldn't buy that. If you said, hey, I want those, all of those rings, you wouldn't get those. You'd send away from them. And they were, I don't know, there had to be 15 or 20 of them, which was a decent amount. It was a decent haul. Nowhere near Jacob or Burlington. Nowhere near our, worth our time. Nowhere near what was proposed previous by Bill and, you know, later backed up by Dad. Is, oh, this will be the one. This will be the one. And, and it was these de- these disappointing robberies that I think psychologically made it all right we'll do another one because the next one will be that big and also out of necessity but there was no necessity at this point we just at this point i think dad just wanted a score that equaled his ego (laughs) oh boy so that's the Littleton robbery. And I'm going to play the call for you now. Uh, it's only a couple minutes. It's three minutes. And then I'll come back because I got a couple of other calls that I'm going to play that don't have to do with Littleton. Um, but uh, certainly interesting information um, and some stuff to pull from that. And then I want to talk a little bit about um, my sister's two dads and how it was like for us growing up and explain that cover picture that I used, that cover art picture. Um, for the episode. So listen to the call, check that out, and I will be right back. What was the guy's name from Littleton? Do you remember? I'm, I'm, I mean, I probably had more interaction with him than you did. Billy does. He'll remember. Fact, I met him in the story now, after the fact. You met him when? When I get back from Shirley, I was in Billy's yep. store doing business, and he walked in, and Billy and his partner fell froze. And the guy came over, and he's talking to Phil, and Phil introduces me. The guy looks at me, says, how you doing? I said, fine, how's business? What do you do? I said, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that was it. didn't remember me. Would you remember the name if you heard it? Yeah. Maurice. No. God, I was almost sure that was it. We'll call Billy later and ask him who the guy was, and I'll call you back. I'd be surprised if it wasn't, because, again, I had more, I mean, he, he ended up, uh, being in a couple of lineups from with me. Maurice? I think that was his name. Victim. Hmm? The victim. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. This doesn't sound right. Do you, do you know that we planned a lot of that robbery standing in a kiddie pool in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico? Yeah. <laughs> me, you, and Billy? Yep. What a, what a boring trip that was, man. Yeah, sure, but I wouldn't do that. I took Bun down there, and she had a ball. How did she have a ball? Because it was different than Saugus, Massachusetts? It was different than Saugus. I took her on a whole bunch of bus tours around. She saw where Elizabeth Taylor used to live. In she Mexico? A, yeah, she had a place down there where she and Richard Burton used to meet on the fly. Oh, they had two houses next door to each other, and they had a, uh, a little bridge made between them. This is before... 
they got together when they were both married. So, other so, so, that, so they could continue cheating on each other. They both yep. bought houses with a bridge connecting them. Yep. Jesus, and the extent they, people will go, man. That must have been some good sex. There was uh, Ava Gardner, very famous. Uh, I know her. Okay. She uh, made a movie down there, Night of the Iguana, with Richard Burke. And where the beach was that we took a tour is where they did this big beach thing. So we love that stuff. No kidding. Yeah. Now, uh, why... Why did we, which office park did we do, did we do the Littleton job? What office park? I don't remember if there was ever a name of that office park. It was one of the office parks in Littleton. It was right off of 495, correct? 495 and 119. Yeah, I remember sitting in that office with Kev sticking out like a sore thumb. Yeah, you guys didn't blend too well, did you? No. And then I had to put a lollipop in Kev's mouth because he started going low. So that poor guy yeah. got robbed with a guy with a lollipop in his mouth. Well, that's good. Maybe it's distorted. No, because you guys still got bagged, and I I ended up in lineup. But uh, then what? We we got in his car, drove it somewhere else, and cleaned it out, right? Yeah. What was in there? Pearls, mainly. Was that where those freaking pearls came from? Yep. Oh, my God. So he was driving around, jewelry store to jewelry store, selling pearls. He had other stuff in there. I couldn't tell you what it was. Yeah, it was shit. He did, it wasn't much. I remember, like, there were these um, square holders for rings, and they were just very, very cheap rings in there. So, oh, my God, uh, I totally forgot to mention the lollipop. So in the call, you hear me talk about how I had to put a lollipop in my brother's mouth prior to us meeting Maurice in the parking lot. And that was one of the points that I was going to make. I usually try to have a common theme and a common thread throughout all of these podcasts or a detail that I like to focus on that maybe other people wouldn't or that I found interesting. And while we were sitting in that lobby waiting for Maurice to pull in, we probably sat there for, I don't know, 45 minutes. And enough for people to start to wonder why, if we were there for any type of appointment for anybody else, they hadn't shown up. So during the time that we would be sitting there, I would be cracking jokes. That's what I did. I tried to make Kev laugh. But that was also very difficult for me to determine when Giggling Hulk was coming out. Kev had a very specific type of laugh, low blood sugar laugh, as opposed to his genuine laugh. Um, He sounded a lot like Ernie when he laughed. (laughs) (laughs) but I was probably sitting there cracking jokes and um, just the the stress of the morning, the stress of being in a non-robbery, maybe even the stress of having a nine millimeter pressing into your kidney as we were sitting there on a couch. um, His blood sugar started to go low and I usually kept Reese's peanut butter cups in my pocket, but the problem was is they would melt in situations like this. And I would be handing him, you know, handfuls of melted chocolate from my hand. <laughs> Not a good scene as his blood sugar is going low, sitting in the lobby of a busy industrial park. So, and I had to grab whatever we had. We usually either had Jolly Ranchers or peanut butter cups. But in this particular situation, all we had in the house was Tootsie Pops. The big ones. Not Now they have these little tiny ones the size of dum-dums. When did those come out? And why weren't those possible back in the 70s? But 
I had to pop one of these son of a bitchin' things right in his mouth just as Maurice was, was pulling in. So Kev had to put the gun in Maurice's face while he had a chocolate Tootsie Pop bulging out of the side of his mouth. I don't know. I don't know if that added insult to Maurice's injury. But it would have mine. I mean, can you take the fucking lollipop out of your mouth before you threaten my life? <laughs> So it was just an interesting point that I brought up uh, in, the, in the call that dad glossed over. And I also want to point out that if you're listening to these calls with any regularity, you notice that dad always corrects me. And a perfect example here is the name of the guy. Dad never met this man. He never set eyes on this guy. If he, and if he did, he was sitting in a Maxima a couple football fields away. So, so his story about meeting him later on in Billy's store, and again, the Billy he's talking about is not Bill Lawson. So please do not mistake any of the times that dad talks about a bill in these calls with Bill Lawson, because unless it's specifically said that I specifically say it, he's talking about a different bill. So he's talking about running into this guy and how the guy didn't recognize him. Well, how could the guy recognize you? The guy never even knew you were part of it. And if he did, he heard about it at a later date. Never, ever, ever met this guy. But he's, my dad is actually saying in this call that, that Maurice should have had some reaction to meeting you again. Why? Post-prison. Me, maybe, but I doubt it because he, he couldn't pick me out in lineups. So, like I say, I know this guy's name. But dad's adamant that it's not Maurice. No, 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 no. And that, but that's in everything. That's in all the conversations that we have. The other person that dad's talking to is never right, is my point. Or at least that's what I'm getting from this. Um, so hope you enjoyed that call. Got a couple more calls coming for you now. I'm going to play this next one, um, which dad, uh, more just more dad ego talk. And uh, just some cool stuff that we, we chat about. So I'm going to play that for you and I will come back and discuss the details of that um, when that's done. See you in a second. That's the best way. Devil's advocate. Well, fuck it. You know, sometimes uh, when uh, I'm laying in bed and I can't sleep, I think of how successful I've been and how the odds were so against it. How crazy. Because I couldn't turn on, yet alone demonstrate, 95% of what I sold. Well, so how'd you do it? Uh, I, I knew how to read the people I was trying to sell to. Exactly. Yeah, but, you know, in, in my business, it's a little bit more difficult because, um, you know, I, I can do that to some extent, but then some of that stuff falls out, outside the realm of reason. Yeah, but I had, a, I had an advantage of, I had a guy who had a problem. I had one guy that used, you know what a modem is? Yep. Okay. Did you say no? Yep. You do know? I do know. Okay, I had a modem customer that had, after they shipped their first six months units, had a 95% failure rate. So uh, I went in there talking to them. <laughs> How they tested their modem, they had a thousand foot roll of the telephone wire, and they sent data down it and received data, and it was good, it passed. Well, the real world doesn't have nice, clean lines. There's noise, there's hits, there's jitters, there's spikes. I used to sell a unit that emulated all those. So you could 
put the worst possible real-world conditions to see what your modem did. I sold six of them at $40,000 a pop to wow. the same guy. Well, they had to. They couldn't. They could not buy it. I mean, they had to buy it. Right. They had no clue why this all all the stuff was coming back. And was, was that the normal price, or did you inflate the show? It was the normal price. Uh, they gave him, I think, five percent discount for quarter and a half dozen. But here's a guy trying to ship to the real world, and he's in an antiseptic environment testing it. That's ridiculous. No, it's, it's like trying to test a car on a flat surface, 72 degrees, sunny. No bombs. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Right. So uh, I identified it, and I get the guy all turned on that I could solve 100% of his problems. And, man, I'll tell you, this guy was so appreciative. He also bought a pair of diamond earrings from me. All right. Stolen? I did know. That's why I understand. Uh, I think if... I, I got a funny feeling that this might be it, Brian. No. We'll see. I'll keep my fingers crossed. You keep me in soon. I'm going to keep everything crossed. How's that? All right. Uh, Jess moved. Yeah, uh, she sent me a picture of the place. The place looks nice. It's a house, and the renter comes down twice a for two weeks, once a year, and he stays in the studio apartment. She has the whole house. And, and six hundred bucks a month, and he gets that check right from the state. Yeah, basically. and it's and it's probably subsidized somehow. He probably gets yeah, extra same. money for that. Yeah. Anyhow, she's happy. She's away from the environment. She wants to be away from. Yeah, I'm gonna see her next week. What's oh, the date? The ninth. Yeah, I'm gonna see her next week. So there's another example of my dad's ego. There's, he just starts it right from the beginning of the phone call. When he lays awake at night, he just marvels at how he has been so successful. But that is why I deemed him the Teflon dad. This just His entire life has been a series of walking into situations that made him just hugely successful. And my God, is that, is that God looking out for you or is that Satan? I don't know. I don't know who he signed to deal with. Um, but wow, I mean, an entire career like that, that has not been my experience at all with life, but there's dad just skating through. Um, and it was in, you hear it in all the calls he did easy prison time. And I mean, listen, there's no easy prison time, but if you're going to put, if you're going to grade people's, uh, level of functioning, behind the wall he had the best in the you know i will tell you that i avoided working because it was the easiest way to get jammed up in some bullshit the easiest way to get to the hole was to be to work the easiest way to get jammed up in in um all right so you're in the kitchen and somebody smuggles out a knife guess what you're in you are guilty because you were in that kitchen and you are treated that way until they figure out where that knife was. When I was on road cruise, when I was in a minimum security prison, um, somebody found a cell phone and they brought it back to the prison. My entire work crew was punished for weeks after that because that one dude wouldn't wouldn't talk. And, and I get it. Who would talk? Who would give themselves up? Nobody would rat them out. But yet the entire crew got punished because we're all a bunch of shitbags. So, we, we, so to get jammed up and stuff like that sucked. That's why I didn't work. But... Do what my dad did, and you can do some decent time. 
you eat decent food, you get out of your cell a decent amount. As a matter of fact, you weren't even in a cell. You were in a dorm, which you were never really locked up. And trust me, trust me, that uh, that plays a role. All stuff that we'll get into later. But um, I got another call here that I'm going to play that just tickles me in ways that you have no idea. Um, just the connection that was made here between me and a, a friend of mine. Um, you're going to hear the term Brian Glowacki in this next next call. And I'm just going to let the call play out for itself and I'll come back afterwards. But uh, I really, really enjoyed this. I hope that what my dad says in this call is true. Can't be that hard to figure out or to investigate. But uh, my good buddy, uh, Brian Glowacki, who I started comedy with, who um, is uh, amazing comedian right now, is, is as professional as you can get because... Um, we started 10 years ago and, you know, I moved all over the place. I moved out to Colorado. I lived with him on Nantucket for a little while. I moved out to uh, Arizona for a little while, then to Florida. So I've been so all over the place that my comedy career has not been as focused as his. And he's just crushing it. He's doing amazing, super proud of him and what he's been able to do with something that he, from the get-go, said, I'm going to take this as far as I can. So super proud of him and what he's done. But wouldn't it be amazing if the connection that my dad talks about in this call is true? And if if my great-grandfather or my whatever he is um, – Almost punched his great-grandfather in the mouth for stealing hubcaps. And it would be great if a Glowacki stole from a Sobolewski and, and, you know, because you know later in life, a Sobolewski would have stolen from a Glowacki. Um, it's just a, just a cool story that I hope is true. And uh, I'll play that for you and I'll, uh, I'll come back and uh, I um, sign off from there. So listen up, guys. It's really cool. I got a question, a favor to ask you, mm-hmm. your buddy Glowacki. I, yeah. Uh, there was a family on Ash Street when I was growing up by the Glowacki. Michael, and I don't remember the, uh, the younger brother's name. Find out if it's relative it is. Michael. Uh, all right, so they're, they all heralds from Nantucket, but maybe some Glowackis. Uh, That's what I'm thinking of. It's not a very common name, that, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious if there's any uh, relatives. Yeah, I'll ask them because uh, I'm yeah. spending a weekend with them, so. The reason I asked is that my dad caught Mike Glowacki trying to steal his hubcaps from his car. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. That would be amazing if this was actually them. And, and wow. And when they were connected way later in life. I mean, you write a movie about that. And he grabbed uh, him by the scruff of the neck and he dragged him back to his house. And he confronted the father who tried to defend the son. That's the first time I thought my father was going to take a swing at someone. Oh, wow. At a Glowacki. Yep, at a Glowacki. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't wait to play this, this whole call. But um, on Ash Street, you said? Ash Street. All right. I'm glad I sent it to him. I, I, never, took him right to now. I never took you to Ash Street, did I? What, uh, why would I remember? Describe it to me. Who was on Ash Street? That's where he, we That lived. was free chestnut? Oh, yeah. Where uh, did Ollie was- live? Ollie lived on Herb Street. Okay. And Ash Street was this little, it's kind of like an alley. It's tiny. And it was right across from the Williams School. And my dad and Bun moved there, and we were on the third floor. My best friend, uh, 
was on the second floor, and Aunt Mary was on the first floor. Okay, then yes, I've been there. Okay, so uh, it, it was it, it's an alley. Yeah, Ash Street like, was like every other back alley in Boston. Well, not quite that narrow, but damn close. If you parked a car on Ash Street and you wanted to drive by it, you had to go real slow or careful. It was that uh, narrow. Yeah, that's yeah. like that sounds like the like Southie. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Salem. Uh, yeah, Salem. Uh, I lived there for about, I didn't move there when I was about three. three. We lived there till 12, and that's when my babchi died, and Dad and Bun decided to buy the house on Chestnut. Amazing. All right. All right, I got to uh, go because I have a client, but I'm going to call you back, and we'll, I want to talk about Littleton. All right. I'm sure that's not gonna. It's not gonna be a long conversation. The sprinkle episode came out amazing. Some people, I'm throwing up a quote somebody sent me about it um, as my next ad, um, and and doing Littleton, and then I think I'm wrapping up the season. So from there, okay. I'm not sure where I'm going. I think I I might do a little bit of Justice Story because uh, you know you know when you watch one of these TV dramas and and you always see they have this backstory just to calm down the action. Yeah. Justice story is amazing for that. Okay. Just an That's amazing true. backstory about two dads, one that did the right thing that wasn't hers, and one that was a shit bag that sat back and watched you write checks. Who's that? Louie. Oh, Louie, Jesus. That piece of shit sat back for years and watched you pay alimony on a kid that was his. Yep. Fucking wow, man. And and she deserves some credit in this whole story because, you know, her and mom went through health because of us, so I'm going to maybe do an episode for her. What the hell was I just going to say? Jesus oh. Christ, I lost my dream. Oh, get did you get Bruce's? Yeah, I, just, I sent it today. I sent that today. Sent it to who? I sent my email to Bruce. Oh, okay. I read the thing. It's fascinating. And he awesome. Writes, I can't wait. He writes fantastic. Uh, and one of the things I get a little confused, and apparently he started this whole thing against lawyers as a... Uh, he wanted to be vindictive against lawyers because of what they did to his parents and the money that was spent uh, trying to defend his parents. Oh, wow. It's in, okay. in the opening paragraphs. So the last part of that call, you hear me mention the name Louis. And you hear my dad say, ugh, Louis. And I have to remind my dad of who he is because apparently my dad doesn't give this person a whole lot of thought. This person was significant because this... Let me direct your attention to the cover photo that I used for this episode because it is a absolutely picture-perfect depiction of how I imagine my sister looked at her father because the person in that picture is her father. So, spoiler alert, Jess is my half-sister. Um, my mother had an affair while she was with my dad and the timeline here is sketchy for me I don't really understand it as much as I, I should but based on conversations with my mom um, this is what I'm able to piece together with it she had an affair on my dad because my dad was away my dad was traveling so much that my mom wanted the spoils of his career but didn't want him to be away as much as he was and my mother was drinking like crazy. I can't... Whether or not you want to cause and affect either one of them. 
my mother was drinking so much because dad was away or my mom was just an alcoholic and left to her own devices um, went to the extreme. That's what we addicts do. I don't know. But it was during this period of loneliness poor mom decided to find comfort in the arms of another. Uh, mom, gotta have to bag you on this one because if you look at my mom... Um, I have a picture of my mom. There's her there, and she has that big beehive hairdo. Oh, my God, I would sit at her makeup table and watch her do that beehive hairdo. God, if there is a version of heaven, that is where I will go. But that is her hairdo in this picture. I actually cropped a little bit of the top of that picture out and had to take some of the hairdo with it. Super Marge Simpson-esque. But it, she made it work. I have another picture of her where she was younger. It's just stunning. Stunningly beautiful, tall very thin, um, very pretty. Um, and then you look at Louis. Aptly named. Louis is his name. Nobody called him Louis. Louis. That's a Louis you're looking at. Smarmy scumbag of a man. Sorry, my opinion. Um, but that's that's what he was. He was, a, he was a politician in the town that we grew up in. How my mom met him, I don't know. No idea how my mom... He was probably knocking on doors, handing out flyers. That's what you did as a politician back then. You, you And I did it my whole childhood. He would force us out during campaign time to, to do that stuff. So along with our criminal um, background from on the Sobolewski side, my stepfather was a legal criminal, in my opinion, in that he was a politician. He got away with tons of shit. We got away as kids with tons of shit because of this guy, because of his status, as a small-time politician, listen, he wasn't a mayor, <laughs> but he knew the mayor and, and was in type. He was the politician of a ward. So Peabody at the time was split into four different wards. And he was um, the Ward 2 counselor, which meant that he represented Ward 2. However, they dissected that up. And, and our house in Sherwood Ave was the you know corner edge of, of 2. The back part of our property line was Salem. So we were very, very close to Salem. So he's a Ward 2 counselor, and he would um, he was excellent at it. He was really good at taking care of the kids in his ward and the families in his ward. And he did two things that were, uh, three things that were of real note to the public that I've never really seen anybody do with consistency as a politician the way that he did. One was that he put a carnival at Eastman Gelatin Field on, um, is that Washington Street? In Peabody, there's this big open field where Eastman Gelatin Kodak used to run lines from their tanks of whatever awful, gross, disgusting stuff they were dumping behind my house. Um, as a byproduct of the film that they were making, Lime, they called it, um was a byproduct that they would dump in huge piles behind Horsey Hill, which was the woods in the back of my house. So if you stood on top of Horsey Hill, you saw the lime pits. And the lime pits are probably the reason why so many of our neighbors had headaches and problems. And there's a lot of our of the people that we grew up with that ended up dying of cancer. And um, I have migraine headaches. My sister has migraine headaches. So there was, you know, some significant environmental toxins floating around Peabody because it was a tanner city. And we had Eastman Gelatin Kodak sitting right in the middle of it. 
that would periodically once a year let us run a carnival in the empty space that it kept next to its factory. And, and Louis was the one that brought this carnival in and took the proceeds that he made from that and put it into a trip that he did for all the Ward 2 kids to Salisbury Beach in August when you were dying. There weren't a lot of public pools in Peabody. Not a lot of kids had pools. If they did, you didn't know them. They were the sort of richer kids. But it was a very blue-collar town. Super, super blue-collar. So, And there weren't watering holes. There was Brown's Pond you could go to. That was great, but it was notorious for kids drowning in it. Um, I don't know. I swam the length of it once when I was a teenager, but uh, other than that, that was and it was pretty far for any kids to get to. And there was only one part of it you could swim in. So it's just not a lot of places to relieve the the drudgery and sweat, misery, humidness of summer that is New England. Yeah, New England. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to crap on on my hometown, but it was tough. It was it wasn't easy. Now. That carnival he did, the trip to Salisbury Beach he did, he did a 4th of July at Welch School, he did a huge, for all the kids in the neighborhood, uh, barbecue where he gave away goodie bags. Now the goodie bags were full of all types of penny candy and this is where, if I end up with type 2 diabetes, it started because all of that candy would be stored in our basement and I would go down to that basement and sit and watch cable TV and eat sugar 12 hours straight teeth are terrible now everything's terrible because of those goddamn goodie bags but i mean they're, they're, there's the beginnings of my cocaine addiction thank you louie <laughs> and we always gave away prizes and stuff and it was just it you know if, if any part of my childhood was cool living in a basement full of candy pretty badass so he did multiple things for the community to make himself look awesome and uh, that is what I would reckon and how he weaseled his way into our life. And he lived with us. He moved in right after, I think, um, my sister was born. He was in quick. Trust me. There was, there's, that picture right there has to encapsulate how my sister feels about men in general <laughs> or just about that particular dad because... The story is that I heard that my mother went home from that affair and tried to pass Jess off and successfully in some ways passed Jess off as dad's, as my dad's. And dad raised her my entire life and paid alimony and child support for a kid that wasn't his. That later on he will say that he knew wasn't his, that Bun knew, his mother knew right away, wasn't his. As soon as it came out, that's not your kid. Now, is this nobility? Is this dad saying, oh, um, I don't know, I don't necessarily agree with dad's reasoning for why he didn't automatically freak out and whatever. Why'd you, why'd you pay? Later on, dad has said that he didn't want... Kev and I to treat Jess differently. Now that is interesting because that's all my dad and my grandmother ever did was treat Jess differently. Example, birthday time. I got $10. Kev got $10. Jess got 5 Jess didn't even get glass ceiling money. 
Jess didn't even get 70% of what the males were getting. She got 50. And that it was prevalent our entire lives. Now, again, I felt that same sting too. Because Kev's always been golden boy. Right now, Kev is living with dad. Kev is going to receive most of dad's inheritance, as told by dad. Um, at some point, I was written out of the will and Kev was written in. Uh, Kev has a $70,000 Mustang right now that he can't afford because he doesn't work for it, but he lives with my dad. He doesn't have any expenses. He's always been the golden boy. <clears throat> and I don't want this podcast to be me complaining about the oldest son, you know, receiving all the spoils of, um, you know, the inheritance. I don't give a shit. I'm just trying to show you that the peck, there is a pecking order in my family. And I don't know if it's that way for other Russian and Polish families, but, you know, Kev, Kev's the top. He's the top dog. Now, Dad will tell you that he wanted to raise Jess that way so we would all be one big happy family. Nothing's further from the truth. I don't talk to, I don't talk to Kev. And, uh, you know, until recently, until I moved down here, Jess and I didn't talk that much. Sp you know, sp sporadically, probably more my fault than hers. Um, I'm just, we're not phone people. Now, I just said that, you know, even calling Kev was like pulling teeth to the point where he made you dislike it so much you'd stop doing it. And that's what, if that's what he wants. So this story is, is shitty on all edges, but for my sister, probably more than anybody. I have to say that if you were going to list the victims here of the people that were hurt the most by what we did, I'd have to list my mother and sister as, as the tops because they never got any of the good parts of it. And we gave my mother a bracelet and we might have given my sister a couple of things, but I probably took that stuff back from my sister and traded them from cocaine at some point. You know what I mean? It's just, so I wanted to put that picture out there because there aren't a lot of pictures of us together as a family. And I'm going to try to put out what there is of us, you know, out there so you guys can see them and you can check them out on social media. So... I just wanted to take some time and, and to talk about what it was like for us growing up because this guy was very, very uh, prominent in our lives, but, you know, he hit us constantly. Um, but he also maybe made it easy for us psychologically and maybe paved part of the way for our dad to be able to present to us the idea of committing armed robberies and us not immediately saying no. And, and uh, you know, I'm not assigning him any blame other than the fact that the environment that we grew up in was a politician that got us out of shit. If you knew the right person, then there were certain rules that didn't apply to you. That is what that, you know, and, and I don't know if you remember any of, of, you know, Peabody's history, but we had a congressman, I think, that ended up going to, to prison. I'll, I'll look it up. Um but, you know, Boston just, like all cities and all municipalities, is just rife with corruption and, and Peabody was no different and Louis was a part of that machinery. And I don't know that um, that didn't help contribute to how my brother, my sister and I felt about getting away with certain things that other people wouldn't even consider. Does that make any sense? So I, I offer this description to you, this photo of you, this very private information of my sister's. I hope she doesn't mind that. But I offer it to you as another piece of a puzzle that, that 17 episodes in should start coming into focus. And that picture is one of them. That picture is a corner piece because we all felt that way about him. 
my sister's look on her face is absolutely it's just so much wisdom in that little girl's face that little pigtail girl's face turning away from that scumbag saying nope don't want any part of this none of it so Jess went with the, the dad that treated her the best. My dad still sends her money, still tries to help her out, still tries to, to I'm not going to say do the right thing because spending time with your kid and, and being there for your kid and being the person that your kid calls when their heart is broken, to me, is a parent. Not the person that writes you a check because you're hurt. But again, you know, got to keep your expectations low out there, folks. Hope you enjoyed episode 17. I tell you, I didn't expect it to be this long, but I'm glad that a lot of this information got out because we're setting the stage for season two, which is coming up close. Maybe one more episode before we wrap up this season. Um, and then we get into some real, real, real cool, cool stuff in later seasons. Um, don't have any comedy this week, so I'm going to leave it here. Not too sure if we're any closer to figure out whether or not crime does pay. Had a lot of fun presenting this to you. I hope you enjoy episode 17 as much as I did. Take care of yourselves and each other.